Mark chapter 4 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 35 through 41 this morning. The question I want to begin with, and the one I want us to be thinking about as we move through this passage, is how sovereign is God? How sovereign is God? And if you wonder what that question means, what what the word sovereign means, it means God's control. How much is God in control? What is God in control over? Now, this is an important question because a lot of different people interpret this question in different ways. Uh, Some people will only say that God is in control over the good things, but he has no control over the bad things, which of course is problematic, right? Because aren't, don't we want to, don't we need to go to him when bad things arise? Or some people will say, well, God does not know the future and he doesn't know what the future outcome will be. And so it's sort of like he spun the world like a top and he's sitting back and he's hoping that everything works out as he says it would. So some, some will say that he's not control over the future. Some will say that he doesn't have any control over our salvation. Some will say that or act as if he doesn't have any control over our sanctification, our spiritual growth. But it's important that we understand what the Bible says about God's sovereignty, about his control. Because wherever you land on this, it will greatly impact the way you live your life. For instance, if you only believe that God is in control of the good and the bad, how can you, and not over the bad, how can you trust him in the midst of suffering? If you, only, if you don't believe that God ordains future events, how will you rest and believe that God is able to fulfill his promises to us? If you don't believe that God has control over our salvation or our sanctification, this means that you only trust your own abilities and your own righteousness to redeem you and to sustain you to the end. And so what I'm trying to show you this morning is that the sovereignty of God is a massive topic and it has incredible implications. Thus, we need to figure out what it is that we believe about the sovereignty of God. And in Mark chapter 4, what we're going to see is that the sovereignty of God is displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The sovereignty of God is displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So far, this is what we've seen in Mark 4. Mark has been teaching crowds of people. Crowds are following him. But Mark will often display to his disciples through what we call parables, or what the Bible calls parables, in their short stories telling them what the kingdom of God is like. And so he's been telling his disciples, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Here's another parable. Here's a parable of of seeds being planted. Here's a parable of of a mustard seed. And he begins to kind of display these different parables. And now what he's going to do is he's not going to teach them of what the kingdom of God is like, but he's actually going to show them. And there we're going to see that he is sovereign over all. And this is perhaps one of the more familiar stories of Jesus in the New Testament. Let's read uh, Mark chapter 4. We'll start in verse 35. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, notice the section begins. It says, On that day, 
he said to them. Now we got to remember the context. Verse 35, verse 34 rather, Jesus is showing his disciples through a parable, again, what the kingdom of God is like. And then he's going to move to 35 where it says on the same day. So in other words, on the same day that he taught these famous parables, he takes them on a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And he says, we're going to go to the other side. And so now he's going to not just teach, but he's going to show. Notice what happens. Verse 37. And a great wind storm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, I don't know if you've seen this maybe through cartoons about Jesus' life. Anybody grow up with adventures in Odyssey or something like that where you see the scene and it's sort of this subtle waves start to build and, and Jesus is just sleeping in the, in the boat. But, but, but what you see is it's not so much that. It was probably more aggressive than that. If the, the, the waves are crashing into the boat so much the boat is filling up with water. And so you can imagine the fear And no one wants to be in a boat or a raft that tips over. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been on a raft and maybe you're laying on a on a float and you're getting you're sunbathing and all of a sudden somebody swims up and they flip you over, you immediately like everything that you've learned about swimming is completely thrown out the window in that moment. Like you begin to panic, you begin to try to grab things, you you wave your hand, you go under the water, you breathe in water, you're coughing. And then you're, you're franicking because you feel like there's 20 feet below you when you can probably actually just touch. But you're freaking out. And this is what this would be like with the disciples. They're in this wooden boat. They're on, and it's like a scene from the, the deadliest, cat, deadliest catch. And they're in this little boat that has no, that's not comparative to, to the boats that we have today. And they're panicking. And what do they do? Well, they turn to Jesus. But what is Jesus doing? Verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? Now the stern is the back of the boat. This would have likely been the wettest part of the boat where the water is pouring and pounding in. And there, what do we do? We find Jesus sleeping in the midst of the rain and the storm. But what do the disciples do? They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And notice Mark's gospel, they call him teacher. But if you actually read other gospels, you'll see Luke's gospel, for instance, he'll say master. You'll see Matthew's gospel and he'll say Lord. So all three places where this account shows up, they call him something different. And some people will say, well, there's just inconsistencies there. See, the Gospels, they say different things. Now, what I want to show you, there's not inconsistencies at all, because teacher, master, Lord, they're yelling out a lot of things. And I would say they're yelling out a lot of things that probably aren't even being recorded. What would you say in that situation? Look at, look at what they're saying. Mark's gospel says, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Luke's gospel says, Master, 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 we are perishing. Matthew says, Lord, save us. We're perishing. In other words, there's a lot of things that were being said. What would you say in that situation? Don't blurt it out. We don't want to hear all the cuss words that you would say. But what would you say? A better question might be, What do you say? What do you say when God seems like he's not answering? Or when he seems like he's not responding as quickly 
swiftly as we would like him to respond. What do you say? What do you say when God hasn't given you that job yet? Or that promotion yet? Or that raise yet? What, what do you say when God hasn't given you a spouse yet? Or a boyfriend yet? Or a girlfriend yet? What do you say when God hasn't given you a child yet? What does he say? When, what do you say when, to God when he hasn't healed you? When he hasn't healed a loved one? Or what do you say when your marriage isn't better? When your friendships aren't healthier? What do you say to God when you have emotional pain or spiritual pain or physical pain? How do you bring these things to the Lord? And I think we can understand the disciples and have empathy for them in this moment. Lord, do you not care? Teacher, do you not care? Do you, do you know that we are perishing? Aren't you going to do something about, about it? Aren't you going to save us? Throughout the Psalms, you see David saying the same question. Sometimes I think David is, is like bipolar. Like other, sometimes he's like, I worship you. I love you. you you're, you're amazing. You're glorious. The next chapter, he's like, where are you? Do you even care? Are you going to let evil persist? Even you began starting with Habakkuk chapter 1. The prophet Habakkuk begins writing to the Lord. He says, Habakkuk 1, 2, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or to cry violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk is going, God, don't you see the evil around? Are you going to do anything about it? Why are you letting this happen? And so for many writers in the Bible, Old and New Testament, there's many people throughout the Gospels, they look at God and they say, what are you doing? When are you going to intervene? How long will you let evil persist? How long will you allow me to go through pain and suffering? And it seems that God doesn't care. And that's what his disciples feel in Mark chapter 4. The storm is increasing and what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. So disciples are crying out. Now, although it seems that Jesus doesn't care, it's not that he doesn't care. What we need to understand is that Jesus doesn't respond to the way that we respond. I'll, I'll use another example. Think John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is a story of Jesus' friends Mary and Martha, Jesus' friends, Mary and Martha, they have a brother that, he, that Jesus also loves, Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick, and he's, he's, he's going to die. And so Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus. Jesus is days away from, from being near to them. And they send for Jesus. They say, Jesus can come and heal him. Someone get Jesus and bring him. But what happens when Jesus gets this news? Does he go right away? No. Jesus waits for two days. I mean, somebody tells you your loved one, your friend is dying. You should come see them. We instantly get in our car and go. Jesus waits for two days. And the text is even clear. It says that Jesus loves Lazarus. Even, even though they, when they sinned for Jesus, they said, Lazarus, Jesus, whom you love is dying. Come and see him. He says, no, I'll wait for two days. Right? The, the, the NCAA tournament's happening right now. I can't, I can't come, right? Got to wait two more days. And then what happens? Jesus waits two days. He comes He's four days late. Lazarus has already been buried for four days. 
And when Martha sees Jesus, what does she say? John eleven twenty one, Lord, if you had been here, if you just shown up, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is not even bothered by this. He says, um, did you forget, like, I'm the resurrection and the life? And he looks at it, he goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, what happens? He's raised from the dead. So Jesus is, doesn't operate the way that you and I operate. Martha's response, the disciples' response, our response, they're often similar. When God doesn't respond the way we respond because it seems like God is careless, when I want to tell you that he's not careless, he's just sovereign. He's sovereign over all, which means we, as human beings, we operate in time. Jesus operates outside of time. Death is not a dimension for Jesus. Jesus overcomes death. He doesn't operate the way that we operate. Let me show you why. Think back, Mark 4. We're back in Mark 4. You find Jesus. He's asleep on the boat in the middle of the storm. And now Jesus awakes. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the great wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The text says that Jesus, it uses an interesting word, it says rebuked the storm. Oftentimes we think rebuke is like a, a bad thing. Like I'm, I'm rebuking you, I'm calling you out, I'm, I'm saying I don't like you, I'm disapproving of you. Rebuke is not always a bad thing. Rebuking is really correcting. I'm correcting this storm. I'm, I'm, I'm telling this storm to listen to me, to obey me, to heed my words. Now, we can rebuke things only if we demand its obedience, right? We don't rebuke things unless they obey us. Parents, we, in a way, we, when we correct our children, we're rebuking our children. We're saying, don't run out in the street. Don't sniff magic markers, right? Don't do that. Rebuking you. With employer to employees. Don't show up to work an hour late. Professors to students, don't turn in your paper a month late and expect grace. Coaches to players, don't foul Kyle Guy when he's shooting a three-pointer at the end of the game. Don't do that, right? We don't rebuke things unless they obey us. We don't get into our car. If it doesn't crank, we don't say, in the name of General Motors, crank. Why? We, don't, we wouldn't expect it to obey us. We don't look to our smartphone and say, in the name of Android, stop shutting down, right? See what I did there? Why does Jesus have the authority to look at the wind and to look at the storm and tell it to stop? Only these attributes belong to God and God alone. Only God can do that. Look at Psalm 89, verse 9. He says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 65, 6. He says, The one who his strength establishes, established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. Psalm 107, verse 29. He says, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were 
hushed. The reason why Jesus calms the storm is because it's his storm to calm. You ever been somewhere where a parking lot around a crowded a group of a crowd of people and you hear a car go off, the, the, the alarm goes off, and, and, and you're like, whose is that? And then finally somebody's like, oh, that's mine. And they pull out the button, they press the button, say, bip, bip, sorry about that, y'all. This is what Jesus is doing. Here he is asleep. The storm is out of control. Disciples are like, Jesus, did you know that the storm, oh, that's right, that's my storm, my bad. Let me turn this off for you real quick. Let me calm it real quick. And I can do that because I own it. Jesus uses the same language to rebuke the wind as God did when he rebuked the waters at creation. Jesus is using the same language that God did when he rebuked the Red Sea to part in Exodus. And Jesus is doing only things that God can do. And so if you look at this text, if you wonder, for anyone who ever asked, by the way, they say, well, Jesus never claimed explicitly to be God how on earth do you explain this passage? You can't. Only God can, can command a storm to cease and the waves and the wind to calm. Only God can do that. The disciples didn't see it that way. So look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 40, he says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, their lack of faith wasn't the fact that the wind was strong. You're in a small boat. You have a big storm. Obviously, it's a scary place for anyone. The lack of faith was not believing, rather, that God was sovereign over all. That was their lack of faith. Three, three ways that the disciples displayed a lack of faith in this passage. First of all, they didn't believe Jesus' word. If you remember in the very beginning in, in verse 35, it says, On that day... When the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Jesus didn't say, well, we hope to, to have our best day out in the water. We hope we don't drown. We don't know about the weather. We'll have to check and see and make sure the weather's okay. Jesus didn't say that. He's like, we're going to go to the other side. So they believed in his word. They would believe and they would trust that they're going to get to the other side. Secondly, they accused Jesus of something that's not true of him. They accused Jesus of a lack of care towards them. Verse 38, teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? Anytime we believe that Jesus doesn't care for us, it shows that we're displaying a lack of faith because we aren't believing something that is true of Jesus. Rather, we're listening to the lies of the accuser who wants us to believe that God is distant and God is careless. And lastly, they display a lack of faith because they forget the big picture. The disciples should have believed that God would not allow the Messiah to go out like this. That the Messiah would come and he would rule the world. And now he's going to die on a fishing trip? I don't think so. Of course he's not going to die. Of course he's going to do what he says he's going to do. That's the big picture. That's what's supposed to happen, of course, he would be on the throne. He would be the risen Lord on the throne, reigning over all things. They should have believed that, but they didn't. 
When you watch Infinity War, you, are you going, oh, Thor is going to die in the opening scene. No, you know he's not going to die. You're going to go, okay, somehow he's going to get out of this and I can't wait to see this unfold. Same with Jesus. If the disciples displayed faith, they would have looked and said, okay, somehow Jesus is about to fight this monstrous storm and somehow he's going to win and I can't wait to see how this unfolds. That would be a response in faith, but that's not what happened. However, Mark here shows us in verse 41 that the disciples' view of Jesus begins to change. 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Who is this Jesus that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, this isn't a bad fear that they have. It's actually a healthy fear. Bad fears are birthed because we believe that more danger is ahead. ahead. But a healthy fear is what they have. It's It's a reverent fear. This is a scene of they're standing before Jesus and they're in awe of his might and his power. So when you stand in front of something more mightier than you, it should humble you. This is why no one should stand in front of the Grand Canyon and say, you know how much money I made last year? Let me show you. This is why you don't, you're not on a, on a plane circling around Everest and seeing the beauty and the magnitude of Mount Everest and you say, do you know how much I can bench press? You wouldn't do that. You would stop and you would marvel and you would hush and you would be in awe and there would be some sense of, of a reverent fear. The disciples are stunned in amazement because they cannot believe that Jesus is the God-man and he's sovereign over all. And friends, an unhealthy fear of God is one that believes that God is vindictive, that he seeks to punish us, that when we don't perform But a healthy fear of God always leads to rest and to comfort. These disciples, when they see Jesus' strength and his might, they realize that he is powerful and that comforts them. There's a sense of the disciples saying, wow, I didn't know that Jesus could even do this, that he's this powerful and that he's this sovereign, that even the mighty sea obeys him. Reverent fear believing that God is sovereign and powerful over all. It should and it will lead us to comfort. So as we take this text, let me go back to my opening question. How sovereign is God? And then let me ask you this. If you don't believe that he's sovereign over all, how is it that you're comforted? And you might say, oh, you have to believe in the sovereignty of God. That's why you want to be comforted in hard times. So you force yourself to believe in the sovereignty of God. You find different passages to show that he's sovereign so that you'll be comforted. And what I want to tell you this morning, I believe in the sovereignty of God, not just so I can be comforted. I believe in the sovereignty of God because it's all over scripture. And it just happens to be a truth that comforts me. That's one of the benefits of seeing the sovereignty of God throughout Scripture, that God is in control of all things, but it, but it does comfort me. But what I see is it's all over the place in the Bible. 
It's how the Bible actually fits together. It's how I understand the, the grand narrative that Jesus in the Old Testament is displayed and shown up. And we, he, all these th- different things happen of trials and struggles. And it brings to this glorious, wonderful, redemptive plan. And all this, the whole grand narrative displays the sovereignty of God. And what does it do? It lets me know that God can be trusted in good and bad. And knowing that he's sovereign over all brings us incredible comfort. And so friends, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, how is it that you can be comforted? How is it that you can read Romans 8, 28 and says, okay, all things work together for the good of those who love him or are called into his purpose. Do you know, you know the only reason why you can believe that verse? Believing that he's sovereign. Because if he's not sovereign, all things aren't going to work together for your good. Or you don't know if they are or not. How can you live with that certainty? You live with that certainty by believing that he's sovereign over all. How can you be certain unless you believe that God is sovereign to control the good and the bad? That he alone has the ability to take what is bad and what is evil and redeem it for good. Isaiah 45, verse 7, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does half of these things. Is that what it says? No, he says, I do all of these things. What's the Lord saying? He's saying, you can meet me in the good and you can meet me in the bad and you can trust that I am sovereign over all of it. It doesn't mean I create bad things to happen. It means I'm sovereign over the bad. I'm not the author of evil, but I am light in the darkness. And I'm, oh, I could reign supreme over all things. That I can take what man in, intends for evil, and I can make it for your good and my glory. That's the hope that we live in by believing in the sovereignty of God. So what God is saying is that you can trust him. That in your storm that you face, that's inevitable, says, I got this. That's what the Lord is saying. That we can rest in suffering only if we know and believe that he's sovereign over all. Otherwise, it's hard to trust him in the midst of a trial. And if we look at God, if we don't believe that God is sovereign, we'll look at him like the disciples looked at Jesus on the boat, that you're asleep during my trials, that you're asleep during my pain, that you're asleep in the midst of my enemies. The sovereign God says, no, this is my storm. I've got it, and you can trust me. And if God is not sovereign over all, how can you trust him? How can you trust him with your own salvation? He's not sovereign over your, your salvation. How can you trust him that he's going to sustain you to the end? If he's not sovereign over salvation, how can you even trust him with your friend's salvation or your coworker's salvation or your family member's salvation? How can, you, how can you pray to a God who's not sovereign to take care of it? How can you pray about your lost loved one or your, your unbelieving loved one? You say, God, would you intervene in their life and would you save them and would your spirit draw them and would you open their eyes? How can you pray that way unless you believe that God has the sovereign right to actually intervene and open their eyes? You can't do it consistently. You can't even pray for healing unless you believe that God's sovereign. 
You can't say, God, would you heal my family member who's sick? Or would you heal me in my sickness? You cannot pray that unless you believe that God is sovereign and right and powerful enough to do that and intervene and to heal you. You can't do it. The only way to pray consistently when we ask God of anything, we have to believe that he's sovereign and he sits outside of time and he doesn't operate the way that we operate and he can intervene if he wills. And so we pray and we ask and we plead knowing that he's sovereign and in control over all things. Or y'all are quiet this morning. But this is good stuff. This is where we rest. This is where we have hope. Your salvation and the salvation of all men and women rests solely upon the sovereignty of God. Our inheritance in Christ, our eternal resting place, that we would worship Christ Jesus forever, rests upon the fact that he is sovereign over all. In other words, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord of all. So how can we believe that Jesus is Lord of all? What is it that helps us or urges us or presses us to trust him? Well, in just a few weeks, we'll perhaps see the greatest display that Jesus is Lord of all. On April 19th, we're going to come and gather and we'll be here for Good Friday. And what happens on Friday? What are we remembering? We're remembering Jesus' death on the cross. And Jesus' death on the cross is the most wicked and heinous act in human history. And it happened to God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the innocent and sinless man, was nailed to a cross. He was betrayed, he was beaten, he was spit upon, he was mocked, he was treated as a criminal, he was treated as a traitor. But worse than that, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. Why? Because he absorbed the sins of the world. And when Jesus absorbed the sins of the world, what does he do? He asked a similar question that his disciples asked Jesus when he was on the boat. Jesus looks to his father when he, absent, when he absorbs the sins of mankind. And he says, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus asked this question because, again, he took on our sins. But did God actually forsake him? Did God leave him? No. Why? How do we know? Because on that Friday, the most heinous act happened in human history to any person who's walked the face of the earth. We know that God did not forsake him because Sunday came, that Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave three days later to prove that God is powerful and sovereign over all. And this would be something that God himself planned before the foundation of the world, that his son would come and die for our sin. God would plan it out sovereignly. He planned out the most heinous act in human history. Not that he 
crucified Jesus. Our sin crucified Jesus, but he planned it out in all of human history. And that very thing, God is sovereign over and gets the most glory from the death of his one and only son. So if you're asking yourself the question, can I trust God? Do I believe that he's sovereign? Look to the cross, friend. Look to the cross, because the cross is our hope. The cross is how we know that we can trust him, that we believe that he's sovereign over all. And not only that, the cross proves that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is merciful, that he is kind, and that he loves us. And so, believer, perhaps you are going through a storm. You're going through a trial and a difficult time. Maybe you've just come out of one, or maybe you're about to face one. My hope is that you would rest in the truth that Jesus is sovereign over all. That whatever you're facing, might you rest in that this morning? And might you have the the fear that disciples have? Not believing that God is putting you through a storm because he's vindictive and he seeks to punish you. Rather, that you would find rest and comfort knowing that he has got your storm. That he's sovereign over your storm. And he calls you to trust him. So may our fear, our all-powerful, before an all-powerful and almighty God, lead us to comfort this morning. God help us. Let us pray. Jesus, we're grateful for your word. God, I pray that we would trust you.